I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you want to support the work that I do on Stageworthy, you can do that by leaving a tip, either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Your support helps me cover the cost of making this show, helps expand the show, and more. You can find a link to the digital tip jar in the show notes, which you can find on your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. My guest this week is actor, singer, and theater artist Joseph Zita. We talked about growing up in Mississauga as a Guatemalan adoptee, how Disney movies led him to the theater, and some surprising full-circle moments in his acting career. We also talked about his theater origin story, what it means to be an emerging artist, the trials and tribulations of theater school, and how a summer at the Stella Adler School in New York City changed everything for him. Here's our conversation. In your bio, you describe yourself as a Toronto-based actor, singer, and theater artist. This is going to be one of those one of those questions that's like a little difficult. For <laughs> you, you have actor singer. So what is the difference between actor and singer and theater artist? What's the what's that uh, the theater artist part of it? I mean, the theater artist part of it is something I'm constantly figuring out and negotiating myself. Um, but basically, for me, that just means like I am open to whatever other possibilities of working in the theater there are outside of being specifically an actor or specifically a singer. Um, it's it's kind of, um, we, I had a teacher at university who would call it um, theater practitioners. Um, so it's in that same sort of flavor. It's more just... Uh, indicating a love of the theater and a willingness to sort of be a part of it and its creation in whatever forms that may be. Sure. Absolutely. It's the uh, similar to just being like what people, uh, a theater maker or something like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, as far as, as far as that aspect goes, do you see yourself? Cause I often think of that kind of thing uh, as like creation of your own work or things like that. Is that something that you, that you are doing, have done or see yourself doing? Um, vaguely see myself doing. Yes. In what, in what capacity I'm not entirely sure at the moment. Um, I have ideas in my head that I'd like to maybe write at the moment, but I don't really fancy myself a writer. Like my, my strengths are as an actor. So I, I, it's, it's like, I don't know how to describe it better than like, I've got like, um, like specifically to to sort of give you a specific example, like I I am adopted, and and so many people are like, well, you should like you should write a show about like your adoption story, and I'm like, I know I know that I should, I just don't know what I'm gonna say, and I'm sort of in the the thick of figuring out that story for myself. So I think once that story is more processed for myself, 
I will have a better time writing something. But until that day comes, I'm not like putting a, a fire under myself to like write something tomorrow. You know what I mean? I do want to talk to you about about that because as the brother of adopted siblings, yeah, um, it's it's something that 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 you know the 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 adoption story. I think some people are like, oh, it's got to be so exciting, and your part of the adoption story probably is not the exciting part. <laughs> like you you were eight months old when you came to Canada, yes. so you probably don't have a lot of memories about that part. No, and it's so funny. I mean, the the brain is a wild thing, and um, something that I'm learning. First of all, I love that we share this connection of of being part of adoptive families. That's really cool. So you're you're going to understand so much already what I'm going to say. Um, but what was really fascinating that I'm only learning on my own journey is that like we form as individuals, and our our neurological synapses are formed so intensely um, in the first two years of our lives. Um, and I know that when my parents were adopting in the 90s, they sort of thought that, oh, it's a baby, it's going to be a total blank slate. As it turns out, we are neurologically attuned to our birth mothers as early as being in the womb from, from that part of our animal brain that's like, I must be attuned to this primary caregiver. And if I am not, I'm going to be eaten by a wolf and die. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's really it's really fascinating. I, I don't have like specific memories of my early adoption. But um, as, as I piece together my own story and hear the stories that were told, you know, from my parents and my grandparents, I'm like, oh, like my body remembers this somewhere in there. Um, and it's really, it's really weird to be processing that, but there is something empowering, you know, um, they, they say so much in theater in, in, and sort of life that, you know, so many things are out of your control. Some of the time it has nothing to do with you. And here's like a chunk of my life that is so influential to me that really has nothing to do with me, but has like impacted me in such a massive way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my parents, uh, always describe, they would say that, that adopted children, grow up with a hole in their heart. Oh, yes. Um, because they, you know, they know they have a family, they know that family loves them, but there's that, that, that piece, that something that is like almost, uh, I think for both my brother and my sister, there's that question of, of, of why was I given up that yes. sort of thing. Right. Yes. And it doesn't matter how much love a family pours into the adopted child, that question is always going to remain. Um, and so it's, it's, it's something that, that sort of shapes the experience and sets the adopted child uh, aside or, or makes them a little bit different from a naturally born child. 100%. 100%. And it's something that I think that, that has to be understood by the parents, the siblings, and everybody who's in that family. Otherwise, yeah. it, it can, when that child goes looking for their birth family, or their birth parents, it can cause real harm to the, like, like there can be feelings of jealousy and things like that with, if, if, if they're not prepared for the fact that this is the child trying to find that missing piece. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, your, your viewers obviously can't see, your listeners rather can't see me, but I'm like nodding like ferociously to this. Um, it's, it's wild. And I'm, I'm starting to I'm starting to process that particular part of my story. It's 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 kind of shocking to discover that you're grieving a parent that you never knew. 
and that you've been grieving this parent for your whole life. I mean, similarly to what you're saying about, you know, the hole in the heart, like my, my metaphor, my version of that metaphor has been like, I feel like, you know, I'm trying to swim across the shore that's right in front of me to the the beach across the way. And no matter how hard I swim, I just can't, you know, get far away from the shoreline. And as I've gone into like this, like deep personal work on myself, I'm realizing, oh, it's not because I'm not a strong enough swimmer. It's because I'm, I'm tethered to like this, what I thought was a rock. And as I, as I dig deeper and deeper, it's actually this like massive boulder under the sand of like grief. Mm. So of course, like no amount of swimming is going to like get you there. It's this like thing that you've, that you're unearthing, that you're, that you're discovering that you, that you've always carried, but never really acknowledged if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It makes perfect sense. The, 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 you were adopted for in an agency based in Stratford, Ontario. Uh, was your family in or around Stratford or were that, was that just where the agency was? That's just where the agency was. My, um, both my parents are Italian Canadian. Um, they're first generation, um, so their parents immigrated uh, to Canada to Etobicoke in the the late fifties. Um, so they they grew up in that little pocket of Italian Canadians in Etobicoke and um, sort of laid their roots in Mississauga. I, I don't know specifically why Stratford, but uh, at the time, as I understand it, there were a lot of um, Guatemalan children who were being put up for adoption. We we were lucky enough to grow up with um, a, a, a set of siblings in elementary school who were also uh, Guatemalan adoptees, and they were adopted from the same agency. Um, it doesn't exist anymore, but oh. it's it's um if you, I God I wish I I wish I looked up the name of it. It if you know the Seven Eleven on Stratford by like the hospital, <laughs> it's like Kitty Corner from there. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's like, for whatever reason, that was the agency that they settled upon. Um, and me, my brother and my sister were all adopted from that agency. Um, for me, it's, it's particularly poignant because I'm like, well, of course a person pursuing theater would be adopted out of an agency based in Stratford. Like it's, it's poetic. You can't write that. <laughs> um, now, did you, when one of the things that's always sort of interesting is like, um, and this is one of the, the questions that, that, um, my mother was always questioning as, as, as my brother and my sister and myself grew older. It's that question of nature versus nurture or the yeah. combination of the two. Right. Yeah. And so, um, seeing, uh, one of my siblings, my sister, who my late sister, who, who never really, who fought so hard and, 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 and was so, uh, to like to put it bluntly she was difficult she was a difficult person to have as a sibling um <clears throat> and my parents often wondered like what is going on we're this is a child that we are treating the same as the other two and then they met her birth mother yeah and everything fell into place mm. um and they were like okay so there's it's not there's an aspect that you can give a child everything but something in the nature also also uh, takes effect. Now, the uh, what I'm leading to is, was your adopted family in the arts? Or is that something that came from your nature? I'm going to go on a whim and say it totally came from my nature. Um, my, my, my adopted family has always been very supportive about um, me being in the arts. 
um, but they are very practical, um, you know, uh, of the earth kind of people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I kind of, as like the artistic queer person in the family, I sometimes feel like I kind of elude them because I'm this like person that they don't always know what to do with. Um, but, so, but yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go as far. I'm gonna go on a whim and say that is kind of within my nature. When when did you feel when I mean we're sort of like heading towards my favorite question about the theater origin story, but when did that start to surface for you? It surfaced very, very, very early. Um and um I, I can't specifically say when, but I loved Disney growing up. Um, you know, like my parents would always say, like, you put Joseph in front of the TV with a Disney movie and he is happy as a clam. <laughs> and um, it got to the point where like, I would like act out the Disney shows. Like I remember like my parents would have their friends over and I'd say, wait, I want to like perform the little mermaid for you guys. Right. So me at three in my basement with like makeshift costumes, just like acting out all the characters for them. Um, and uh, yeah, it, 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 I, again, I, it wasn't like my parents did that. It, I think it was some part of my nature that just sort of, jumped out and said, Hey, you need to do this. Now, what were the, 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 I imagine, I'm imagining that you uh, were growing up at the time you were watching Disney films at the time that the, 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 during the, the, the beauty and the beast era, the Ashman era of the, of, of, of Disney films, which are all because of the team that was writing the music are so close to musical theater anyway. Um, are those the films that you were growing up with? 100%, 100%. And I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to sort of jump into my theater origin story because it is kind of all connected. Um, Ash, it's funny that you mentioned Beauty and the Beast because that was like one of my favorite, uh, VHS tapes growing up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just old enough at the time when, the Canadian production was here um, that, you know, my parents were like, all right, like Beauty and the Beast is playing live downtown at the Princess of Wales Theater. Let's take Joseph to see a, a, a live theatrical show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I must have, I think I was four. I either saw, I, I either saw the second cast. It was, it was Steve Blanchard and Melissa Thompson and, and they sort of were middle of the run and closed out the show. So I either saw it like, middle of the run or end of the run in Toronto. Um, but um, I, I remember like flashes of that show. Like I was just enthralled by it. And there, there's this moment in at the end of act one where the castle spins around and the beast comes out and is like belting the end of if I can't love her. Right, and, I, right. and then the lights come down, the curtain comes down. And I remember just sitting there like totally in awe and being like, Oh my God, mommy, I want to do that. Um, so you could imagine I wore out that cassette tape of like the original cast recording and just like sang it over and over and over again. And like, um, I just, I, I lived for that. It was such a formative experience for me. Um, I could fully trace my theater career back to that moment. It's interesting because, you know, there's all kinds of kids, there's all kinds of Disney kids who grew up into Disney adults, you know, and they didn't go into musical theater, but they maybe didn't see that magical live production as a child. You were four. I was four. That is, that is the time to like 
put the live theater thing into a child's brain, which is why things at, at the holidays are so important, right? The, those live shows that we take that the one time of year that we're like, we're taking the kids to the theater. So important to do it then. But that show, no wonder it was so formative. Um, I know you, you mentioned uh, uh, about there being some full circle moments. So tell me about the full circle from your theater origin story. Oh, I mean, well, there, there's a couple. There's a couple. So the, I think that the, the first for me was um, a couple of years ago, Angel Walk Theater did a um, Beauty and the Beast in concert, um, raising money for um, uh, a, a cancer charity. Um, and um, uh, Brian Goldenberg had invited me to be a part of that. Um, and um, God, it's I, I, I have hopes that I will be in a full production of Beauty and the Beast one day. Um, but there was nothing quite like, um, you know, like Bruce Dow is in that company, uh, Paula Wolfson, um, and um, they were both part of the, the company that I saw um, all those years ago. So to sort of like be on stage with them and to be listening to Paula sing like Beauty and the Beast with like a full like orchestra it was one of those moments where i was like oh my god like this can't be more kismet like i i, I you know like and and i i don't take that for granted I've, I've been very lucky um to have those types of full circle moments in, in my life that have been like the little tidbits and kernels of like keep going keep doing this like this is this is your path um but for for that to be manifested so poetically like that i it was really like a I remember like holding back tears at that like dress rehearsal because it was just so moving to be like, <laughs> all right, I'm doing it. I'm actually doing the thing that I set out to do. Yeah. Yeah. Now we mentioned the, you know, seeing that, that production when you were so young um, and, and sort of saying, I want to do that. But it's one thing to go from being four years old and saying, I want to do that to growing up and, and realizing that you you can do this. This this can be a job. It can be a career. At what point did that happen for you? When did you figure out that 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 kind of performing is a thing that you can actually do? I think I must have like figured it out. Like figured it out when I saw the Lion King at the Princess of Wales Theater, and like you know there there was like the young Simba there, and I remember I was like, oh my god, like that's something I want to do, right? Um, and just sort of seeing that, like, you know, like, Hey, somebody like me can be on stage as well. Um, so I, I, like, you know, my parents had put me in like acting classes and singing classes throughout elementary school. Um, and, and very briefly, I was like, I was also a like recreational figure skater. Um, but around like age, I think I must've been 11. Um, I, I had done an acting camp. Uh, with the Toronto Academy of Acting. Um, and the camp sort of like was sort of a, it was an introduction to the curriculum that they had. And um, they had like, like three levels of like audition coaching and scene study for the camera. Um, and they had like an agency connected to them at the time. Um, and it was sort of sold as like, well, if you like this camp, then like we have all these training courses that you can do as well. And at the time it was kind of like, well, you know, you, 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 my parents were like, you, you can only really choose one. Like, do you, do you want to keep figure skating or do you want to like pursue acting more seriously? And 
I was like acting without question. So um, I, I did all of these like courses and lived for it and loved it and loved being on camera. It, I was, I, I in, in hindsight, I realized I was a bit of a, a shy kid. Um, so acting was kind of an opportunity for me to find my voice and find it in a way that I might not necessarily have known how to have a voice um, in real life. Um, so it just, it, it really just like lit me up and set me on fire. Um, and, and I was lucky, um, really, really lucky, uh, that the agent connected to Toronto Academy of Acting, uh, agreed to sign me on, um, after I think two sessions. So I sort of, I got, I got involved in child acting around the age of 12, very briefly. And it didn't, and it didn't destroy your love of acting. It didn't. No, if anything, it set the fire under me even even more intensely. Um, I, I I never I never really went as far as you could with child acting. I, I was uh, I was on an episode of Mayday. Um, I was in the uh, the movie Firehouse Dog, um, starring a little known name Josh Hutcherson <laughs> uh, from The Hunger Games. Um, but but I never really you know had like the Degrassi career, or I never had like like massive long contracts. And, um, by the time that, you know, by the time I got to high school, I, I think my family and I sort of agreed, you know, let's, let's focus on, on school. And, you know, I, I had gotten into Cothra Park secondary school in Mississauga. It's their the arts high school in Mississauga. Um, and, and, you know, we had like musicals and chamber choir and like dance. And, and I just, again, I got my feet wet there. I, I got involved in whatever I could. So it was, it was clear to me in grade nine that I could come back to professional acting and that I wanted to sort of have fun in high school and immerse myself in as much as I could while I was at an arts high school. Now, not only did you go to the arts high school, but then you, you went on and you, you know, you did the, the theater school thing. I think you went to the university of Windsor. Yes. And then you went to the Stella Adler School in New York. Yes. Now, as a kid from Mississauga or, you know, growing up Mississauga, going or Etobicoke, Mississauga, that sort of thing, like the, the West End of Toronto. Yeah. When you go to a school in New York, what is what's that experience like to, to sort of like jump from the GTA into uh, uh, sort of like living for part of the year in New York and going to school. Oh my God. I mean, I, I can't speak for everybody, but for me, it, it, again, it lit the fire underneath me. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll be honest. I had, I had a great time at Windsor. I learned a lot at Windsor and I also struggled a lot at Windsor. Um, the, the program's training is spectacular and it's thorough. You know, you do Shakespeare, you do scene study, you do, movement viewpoints device composition um it's it's a really really great training ground um at the time um there were certain i'm gonna go on a limb and say like old guard professors who chose their favorites and made it very clear who their favorites were early on in in the training process and their favorites were not queer brown boys like me um so it was it was really really tricky and i remember i i i i I was a young 19 year old and i was very very passionate about theater school and very passionate about theater but i hadn't really figured myself out and i think in hindsight if i could like 
go back and tell teenage Joseph to like do two years of like life experience before doing theater school, I would because it, it is really intense and you do have to have a certain degree of like knowing yourself to sort of weather the storm. Um, but because I was a young 19 year old, I hadn't figured out my work ethic and I hadn't figured out specifically why, why theater at the time. Um, and, and in hindsight too, I, I was kind of a musical theater boy in, in a classical theater world. Would I, would I change that at all? Absolutely not. I, I, I am very much, am an actor first, but, um, all, all that is to say, um, at 19, I hadn't really figured everything out. And, um, I think that was to my um, to my discredit. You know, the, these teachers see you, and unfortunately, they make really harsh judgments about you early on. And you know, if you're not, you know, uh, the straight white Shakespeare boy that is seen as you know going to be the star, it, it, it can be a bit of an uphill battle. And I certainly like I never really left that program feeling like anybody on that faculty was like, "Yes, Joseph, absolutely, Joseph's going to do this." Um, but to sort of circle it back to your question, um, I think that made me hungrier for more. That made me, you know, um, I, I was lucky in the summer between second year and third year to do um, a training course at the Stratford Academy at Stratford Festival, led by uh, Kathy McKinnon and Ian Watson. God rest his soul. He is like one of my favorite teachers ever. Um, and it really, it was the first time I felt people actually like believe in me. Like to, to go from Windsor and to have these uh, traumatic experiences with our Shakespeare teacher there and to feel like I wasn't really worth anything in the program. And then to have like Ian Watson at the Stratford Festival be like, no, you've got this. You, you need to do this. Like you have it. Like you have the gift. Nurture it. Go forward with it. Um, it just kind of set this like fire under me of like, oh, I can do this. I, I do have worth in this theater industry. So all that is to say, it, it, it prompted me to look, look for other programs. And um, I was really, really drawn to the Stella Adler School uh, because they had a music theater program that, that lasted for the summer um, with a really, really exceptional faculty. Um, um, people like Andrea Burns from In the Heights, uh, Peter Flynn, who is a, a very well-established director uh, Devin Anjanki, who is a Canadian himself. Um, uh, Donna Murphy is like a masterclass teacher. Like it, it was really such a spectacular faculty. And, and, and one of the students in the year above me at Windsor had done it the summer before. And she was like, you have to do this, Joseph. This is absolutely for you. Um, so my, my first day in New York as an adult was I, I, I had landed the night before I was staying on a friend from high school's couch who uh, was studying at, at Pace down there. Um, I lotteried Book of Mormon and won the lottery. I got rush tickets for Bridges of Madison County and got like one of the last ones and then like jumped in the cab, went right down to the Stell Aller studio, did my monologue and song audition cuts uh, and then like cabbed back just in time for the Book of Mormon matinee. Um, and it was really just this like magical weekend of like, oh my God, yes. Like seeing theater, seeing the Adler campus and just being like, this is like, this is, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to do. Um, and a couple days later, I got the call from admission saying that I had gotten in and I was thrilled. Um, 
and it was it was really really an exceptional summer it was um you know like like the faculty was incredible the, the program was unique in that it was geared towards like actors who sing it, it wasn't about like scrout the highest or or kick your face the the most intensely it was really like you know i mean you know we had like donna murphy come in for like a master class who is like I think one of the best singing actors there is a full stop, you know, and, and she would be like, you know, sometimes all your song needs is just a scene partner. So she'd like act our songs with us. Like I sang Joanna and like, she was up on like a chair across the room and I was like singing <laughs> Joanna with her as my scene partner. And, you know, Joanna Gleason came in the week after and was like, you know, like, remember my mantra, I cannot guarantee my voice. How could I, you know, it was, it was all like using sort of acting fundamentals as a means of storytelling through song. And I got, I got so much out of that, that, that intensive, I, I built like lifelong friendships there. Um, and like sort of like living and breathing New York life, like class from 10 to six rehearsals in the evening shows whenever we can squeeze them in, like, fitting in as much of the season as we possibly could. I think I must have seen like 20 shows that summer and, and you know, getting to like live on the energy of New York. Um, in like one of our last classes, Andrea Burns said something like, New Yorkers are born all around the world and they find their way to the city because they're meant to be there. Something is drawing them there and calling them there. And that, that has always kind of resonated with me about that experience um, and about my time there. And it really just like, I mean, I, that was between my third and my final year of theater school. So to like have that like formative experience and like launching me right into like my last year of like final performances and like, you know, grad recital and all that and sort of transitioning the industry, it was like, the, the, the bolts of fresh air that I needed. So I, I carried a lot of New York energy with me back home. Well, that's, I mean, that's really interesting because there's, I can see if I had done, if somebody in my class, when I was in theater school, cause you know, it was a long time ago and we had a lot of that old guard uh, 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 teacher with the attitude of we're going to, our job is to break you down and then build you back up. And they do a lot of breaking you down and not a lot of the building you back up. Yep. But I think that, if 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 any of us had done like the 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 that what you did and go to New York and do like this thing and then come back with like that kind of confidence, I don't think they would have appreciated it. So because in some ways I feel like the theater school experience that I had was keeping us on eggshells through our our whole time, and then letting us go into the world with all of the anxiety and all of the all of the there's lots of people who finished that the program and just bailed on the whole career. Yeah. Like, cause it was that kind of experience. Yeah. Um, so I think it's amazing that you went, uh, between your, 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 your going to school in the final year, because that, that you had the experience of being like told that you're good, which means that those teachers who didn't agree with that were now faced with, Oh, our opinion is in everything. Right. So you carry that through that confidence. Right. Yeah. I, I'm going to go on a limb and say if I hadn't done those experiences, I think my my last couple of years at theater school might have been very, very different. And I, I wouldn't go as far as saying that I wouldn't have a career right now. But and, and I, I am still certainly working through 
the myriad of traumas that those old guard teachers have given me. Believe me, I still hear one of them in my mo- in my mind's ear all the time. But um, I, I, w- I wouldn't go as far as saying that I wouldn't have a career, but I think I was able to sustain myself through the last couple years of my undergrad because of those experiences. And, and like you said, because I had the experience of someone saying, no, you're good. I think, I think, I, I honestly think, you know, I, I agree with you, People, you know, these schools used to focus on tearing you down, but they would never actually build you up. And, and I, I actually think that, um, I think that it's healthy to be told your worth. And I think it's healthy to be reminded of what you have to offer. You know, the world, the world is hard enough as it is without somebody telling you that you're shit every day in class. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think people grow the most in safety and people grow the most in, in feeling like they are seen and valued and appreciated. And, and, um, that's certainly, you know, the way that I grew best. I, I've said for years, cause a lot of us who, who were in that program at that time, um, twice a year, they would cut people from the program once at Christmas and one at the end of the, the end of the season. So you spent the all year, the entire time afraid that you were going to be one of the ones, unless you were one of the favorites. Yeah. We had those favorites too. And then I always, I've said since like, how can you be expected to, to, to be creative when as far as you're concerned, you are fighting for your life and you're afraid every day. That's yeah. not conducive to to creativity. So yeah. it's it's something that I still think I, I need to do some checking because I don't know how theater school is now. And I'm hoping it's changed. I'm hearing I'm hearing that it's different. Um, and again, I, I, I'm like you. I, I don't have like direct information, but but knowing some of the the people that are teaching there. Um, like, like Eva Berry, one of my colleagues at, at Shakespeare in the Rough, um, she's teaching at like Sheridan and at TMU and George Brown. And I'm like, oh my God, those kids are so lucky to have you teaching them Shakespeare. And like, what a gift that is because you are the antithesis to the old guard pedagogy. Yeah. I actually wanted to ask you about, cause you mentioned, um, wanting to, to, to build a teaching practice. Yeah. Um, I want to, where does that, the desire to, to teach, uh, I assume acting, yeah. uh, uh, come from and, and tell me about using, uh, uh, trauma informed pedagogy involved in, in the actor's training. Absolutely. I mean, it, it comes down to sort of everything that we were talking about just now, you know, um, when I look back on my theater school experience in hindsight, um, I, I realize I mean, obviously, you know, as, as an adoptee with the amount of like complex post-traumatic stress disorder that I was carrying, um, that that informed my theater school experience. And um, I think about some of the notes that I, I would get in class. Well, you're not breathing. You're you're not breathing. You're you're frozen. You're 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 zoning out. Well, I'm dissociating and I'm not breathing because I'm in a freeze response. And I'm in a freeze response because my body is triggered in this state of like fight or flight, probably because I was carrying around the fear of like survival that you talk about, right? Like, am I going to get kicked out of the program? Am I, am, is my work good enough? Am I creative enough? You know, N- none of those from, from, from a trauma informed perspective, none of those conditions are actually conducive um, to neurological safety. And not, you know, for, for anybody who is, 
base level nervous system, that is true. And for people who have endured complex trauma, that is like doubly true. And, and I wish, I mean, you, you, you come to things when you come to them, you, 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 you learn things on your time, but I, I do wish that like some mentor at the time had had the foresight to be like, Oh, like this is actually how we can bring out the best in Joseph, you know, like this isn't because he's not breathing hard enough. This is because some part of him is trying to protect himself from a triggered part. Um, and, and I'm so passionate about the craft of acting and I've experienced a lot of exceptional actor training and I've experienced a lot of like dreadful actor training. So I think my, my impetus to become a trauma informed teacher is to sort of give back to the world what I didn't necessarily get as a teenager. Um, and, you know, since we're, we're, you know, having such a big um, reckoning with, you know, diversity in our theaters and making the theater community more equitable and, and um, more of an open door to people from different backgrounds, you know, I think it's so important that we, that we, set those people up for success by giving them the tools that will benefit them most. And, you know, I, I, I am no expert in trauma. I only know what I know, but you know, if you're, if you're coming to something like theater from the background of being queer or from the background of being marginalized or BIPOC or trans, you're, you're going to be carrying different traumas that you're, that your well-adjusted straight white cisgender classmates aren't necessarily going to have. Um, and it's, 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 I think important that as we're making theater more inclusive and welcoming, we're also setting up these, these students who might come from different backgrounds to succeed with the tools that will actually make them feel safe in the classroom and, and make them find their creative voice. Um, and I, I just, I personally don't believe you're going to get that by telling them that they're shit every day and comparing them to an example student who didn't have to carry the burdens that they carry. You can also layer onto that uh, neurodiversity, yes. um, whether somebody is on the autism spectrum, whether they have ADHD or a combination of the two or, or dyslexia or something else like that. Like these are things that also add to add to that and make people feel like um, both the theater school and the industry isn't for them. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking for a while about about um, the idea of, of, you know, how do you bring people into a rehearsal process and make it useful for them so that everybody is so that it's not a, a, a power trip for the director or the producer. But we find out what each person in the room needs to succeed. Yeah. And how can everybody here contribute to that? And it's a conversation that I think can help can can involve both uh, people who are who are neurodivergent people who are black or people of color or indigenous or 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 like all of these all of these 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 different situations where somebody can can actually voice what they need in in this moment uh in this production to succeed at it and 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 sort of everybody makes the commitment that we all work for that absolutely and I wonder if that's something that, that like, I, I think about like in theater school, if we'd had something like that, instead of we were 
afraid. We're literally, I think, afraid to show ourselves. Yeah. Because we needed, we were told that we needed to be a thing. Like I remember one guy, he had long hair in, 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 in theater school. And one of the first things that happened was within like the first month, somebody was like, you can have long hair now, but you're gonna have to cut it. Cause you have to look like everybody, oh, you know? God. And it's oh, such God. a, like, if you have to look like everybody, you're never going to feel like yourself. Right. Yeah. So how do you come into the theater school and the theater realm and be able to present your whole self? Yeah. I mean, Oh my God. I mean, we could, we could write a dissertation on this, but you know, um, I, I, what, what, what I'm feeling called to say at the moment is like, what, what resonates with me there specifically is like the experience of, of being a transracial adoptee, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I, you know, that like meme of like big bird on the death star with like Darth Vader and like the, the stormtroopers. I send I send that up, but that that is often the way I felt as a transracial adoptee, right? You know, you, you your feathers are sticking out of your uniform, and like no matter no matter what, you are not from this world. You are from Sesame Street. Um, but but it's it's just um, that was kind of my experience, but like without realizing that was my experience, you know, like because I had internalized so much white supremacy you know like growing up in white spaces and like like learning to to kind of I hate that I'm saying this on the record but I'm gonna say it like learning to like hate my brown skin because of the 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 rooms that I was in and you know just sort of being in theater school and I, I, I only say this in hindsight. I don't think I knew it at the time, but like just having that feeling of, I'm never actually going to be straight and white enough for you. I, I'm never actually going to like fit this bill of like the type of person that you see as the only person who can do Shakespeare. Right. Um, and, and, and to sort of speak to your point, like that doesn't actually encourage people to come with their whole authentic selves yeah you're not bringing the tools and the the gifts that you naturally bring to the table you're just trying to be like i don't know brian who is the favorite you know <laughs> there, there was no brian in yeah. my class i'm just no no, no but I, I, yeah we'll call yeah. him brian we'll call, we'll brian, call brian the brian. golden child yeah the brian the golden child exactly you know and 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 to add to that you know like i was one of two POCs in my class, myself and uh, Julius Cho, who is working so much. Um, and both of us, I mean, I can't speak for Julius, but I, I have a sense both of us really felt like the school had no idea what to do with us, you know, like, and and I, I guarantee you, if you had looked at our like graduating class, at the time, people would not have said like, oh, those are people who are going to work. And we're kind of working a lot right now. So it's, it's, you know, like, but like, I think we're doing that in spite of the, the, the swim upstream that we've had to endure and, and what could it have been like if we didn't have to swim upstream as much, what could it have been like if we had been allowed to be our own unique individual selves? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think about the, the faculty, um, uh, when I went to school and the, 
in the early 90s um, when, you know, I'm an old man. Uh, so um, when I was in school, I think about the factor, the, the faculty, and it was cis white. Um, there were a couple of, I think our, our music teacher was gay and there were a couple of, 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 of queer people, but it was all white. Yep. And it was predominantly straight. Yep. Um, and that was, I think, uh, uh, reflected in that um, most of the people of color who joined us at the, in first year did not end up in the class in the final year. Oof. Um, and I, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for that. There's all kinds of reasons for that. But I always find it suspect. Yeah. When the class that graduates is predominantly white. Yeah. And when it started with really talented black, black indigenous people of color in the the course. And I have to wonder often, how did we, how did the, this program fail those students? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm going to go on a bit of a limb here and I, I think the onus has often been put on us as the, the, the marginalized individuals. Well, it, it, you just, you didn't rise to the challenge of theater school. Well, you, you didn't know how to, you know, get rid of your gay or, you know, like you didn't know how to like, you know, I, I, I don't know, fill in the blank however you want. But I, I actually, I, I'm with you in that I actually think that the system wasn't designed for us to succeed. You know, it, it is suspect. If you're, if you're bringing in talented people with a, with a spark and a fire into these theater schools and, and they're not being set up to succeed and it's, it's happening quantifiably enough, perhaps that's a systemic issue. Perhaps that's, that's, you're not creating a safe enough environment for these people to succeed. Maybe it's not that they're, you know, they're not working hard enough. No. And I think a lot of it, I mean, we all went into school with a spark and a fire and most of us uh, uh, left the, uh, uh, a theater school program, at least in my day, we all left and it took us a while after graduating to find that spark and fire again yeah. because it had essentially been beat out. Now, we essentially ha didn't have um, the systemic racism working against us as 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 predominantly white students. So we maybe uh, uh, struggled a little a little less. And so, of course, the 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 students that I had started with who uh, there was, there were some who were black. There were some who were, who were, who were brown, like all kinds of, we had all kinds of people of color within the class and they just didn't, didn't uh, 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 come out the other side. Um, I want to uh, change uh, a tag a little bit uh, right. because you mentioned like you, there, I don't know if you've struggled with Shakespeare or that you struggled with the way Shakespeare was taught until you went to the, the intensive at, at Stratford. Yeah. Because now you're on the board at Shakespeare in the rough. So, uh, what I want to, what is the journey that you had with Shakespeare and how did you find your way to where you are now with Shakespeare in the rough? That's a, that's a really wonderful question. I mean, um, yeah, that Stratford Academy was really formative for me in a number of ways. I think Shakespeare kind of speaks to me personally as a singing actor. There is a lot of musicality in the text, and there is a lot of heightened circumstance in those plays, and there's a lot of poetry in those words, just like there is in song. Um, and I hadn't really 
put those dots together until that Stratford summer. Because, um, again, I was always the musical theater boy in my classical acting program. And that, as if that was some slur, well, you know, Joseph likes musicals. Like, right. how dare he? He His taste does not matter. Um, and, and then, you know, that summer, um, Kate Hennig was in Romeo and Juliet as the nurse and in Fiddler on the Roof as Golda. And she came to speak to our English class and somebody asked her about, somebody asked her something like, oh, well, like what's, what's, what's the difference between your process in musicals and, and your process in Shakespeare? And, and she said, uh, and I'm paraphrasing because it's been seven years now or eight or whatever, but, but she, she, she was like, well, musical theater and Shakespeare are the same love for me. And I approach them really the same, you know, in, in Shakespeare, my heightened text, my heightened, my heightened language is the verse. It's the pentameter in, in musicals, my heightened language is the song. And it's the idea that these circumstances that these characters are in are so massive that speech is not enough anymore. That pedantic conversation will not serve the, the size of these thoughts or the need. Um, and for me, that was like a massive penny drop moment. That was like, I was no longer just the musical theater kid. I had something to hang my hat on and to be like, oh, I can transfer these skills that we learn in Shakespeare class to acting the song. And, you know, a lot of the smartest musical theater composers like Sondheim, like Candor and Ebb, like Lin-Manuel even, are so specific about the way they craft their songs that if you know how to scour a Shakespeare monologue for clues and you have a decent amount of music literacy, you can pretty much use those same skills in transference to fill in those blanks for you as an actor in musical, musical theater. One of the things that I find fascinating is the idea that, that these teachers who were teaching theater in Toronto, in Canada, yeah. were like discounting musical theater. When I was in now, when I was in when I was going to theater school, we had um, the long running production of of Les Mis at that yeah. time. The long running production of Phantom of the Opera was was on at the Pantages at that time. And so the idea of what they how they were teaching us was we need you to be able to do everything. We need you to be able to do Shakespeare, but we also acknowledge that a big part of this business is musical theater. So if you can carry a tune, maybe you can't dance, but if you can act a song, you can get work. Yeah. And that was like the attitude that that they had towards it. And the idea that a school would would discount the musical theater as part of the career path. Yeah is yeah. so it's so like foreign to me like how why would you limit your students that way um uh, pretension is the only <laughs> answer that i have you know it's 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 uh, i would get a lot of well that's not real acting well musical theaters aren't real actors and it just makes me want to like bang my yeah. head on the wall yeah. it's yeah. it's actually like you tell me that it's not thrilling to watch Patty Lupone send over ladies who lunch, you know, like you, you tell me that you're not moved by someone like Marin Maisie or Donna Murphy, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, 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 it's part of the craft. And if you you have the gift, why not bring yourself to it? Um, 
but but to to quickly circle back to your question about rough um rough was everything i i I arrived at rough interestingly through um through the way of song they they needed a community choir and uh for, for the for the production of walking shadows in 2015 and uh someone i went to high school with sam gates um was um the music director who was hired um, and she was like, she put like a post out on Facebook, like being like, does anybody want to come in, sing in the choir at rough? I'm, I'm music directing. And, um, I was like, okay, like I'm not doing anything. This is a great opportunity to like meet people in the city now that I'm back. Um, and, um, it was through that process that I met Caitlin Reardon, um, who wasn't artistic director at the time, but, uh, sort of ended up becoming artistic director there. Um, for the last couple years. And, um, and what was really wonderful about Ruff was it felt like the antithesis to the old guard of Shakespeare. It, 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 you know, the, 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 they have such respect for the canon and they also love to pick it apart and see like, how can we tell Julius Caesar from, from a perspective that is modern that is different that it that has just as much meaning you know and, and I think they've been extraordinarily successful with that over the years but more than that you know they, they've always been an open door and and I I pride like I, I guess as a board member now I pride the company for being an open door to emerging artists um because like you know Caitlin saw me in that circle on the get to know you day she like beeline to me, introduce yourself to me. And I was like, hi, I'm Caitlin. Tell me about you. And, you know, we, we developed this friendship and I did the master classes. And, you know, through that, you know, I was invited to do the Gorilla Ruffian program, which is like the emerging theater artists uh, training program where, you know, uh, actors will do improvised skits using Shakespearean text in farmer's markets over a summer. And, and it was it was from that that you know Caitlin sat me down and was like, for for whatever reason I still don't know, but she was like you know I really I really value you as an artist and I value your perspective and we're looking to have an artist on our board of directors to bring a unique perspective to the board uh, that might support the artistry and our artistic decisions a little bit more from a from a more um, direct perspective connected to what's happening in the industry um and um i was i was shocked at first i was like well wait me you, you want to know my perspective well, I, i'm i'm just a little tadpole in this pond um but but caitlin had really made it clear that she she valued my opinion and then eva of course when eva came on to um co-artistic direct with her um it, it was really special to to hear them want to know what my perspective was. Um, and it was really eye opening for me too, because, um, you know, you'd have this board of directors of like lawyers and business people and, you know, they'd bring an artistic decision to the table and I'd be like, Oh my God, that is so cool. Artistically. I love it. I'm behind it. And then the board would be like, okay, that's great. But how can we factor that in the budget? And have you considered this bylaw and have you seen it from this perspective? And, and, and it was really sort of, informative to me being like oh theater is so much more of a of a business from from this side of the table and I have so much to learn um and 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 I think I I don't want to I don't want to speak out of turn but I I think there were some moments where 
the board had the same experience from the flip side. Like they saw something in a certain way. And then as the artist on the board, I could be like, well, as it turns out, this works because of X, Y, and Z. And, and the, there I was met with a response of like, oh, I hadn't considered that. Thank you for shedding your artistic perspective on it. That's quite a, it's quite an experience to be able to have that, that business uh, side, because I think a lot of times uh, as artists, we forget that it's a business and yeah. there's a business aspect to it. So uh, in some ways you have uh, a unique perspective on that, having like being the artist sitting on the, the board of directors. Yeah. Um, we only have a few minutes left. And I, one of the things that I do want to talk about is the idea of being somewhere between an emerging artist and an established artist. Um, and I'm curious because I feel like the the industry is really unclear with what the what is an emerging artist. Sometimes people are like, "Well, once you're after after 25, you can't be an emerging artist." Oh, dear. And it's like, like I, I hear that sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you see like there's this emerging artist thing up to 25, and I'm like, up to 25, like I know oh, I God. still feel like an emerging artist all like all the time. Like, so do you feel like we I? do we need to dispense with the term emerging artist if we can't define it and like come up with some other term? I wonder. Oh my God. I mean, I don't know if that term exists. I would like for it to exist um, because yeah, I mean, I see the benefit of, of referring to people as an emerging artist at the same time by that metric, if 25 was the cutoff, like I just barely booked my first equity job at soul pepper at 25. Like I, I like I would not call that emerging. Like, you know, like it, it and and people's careers emerge on their own time, right? You know, you see people, you know, get cast at Stratford or in a Mervis show and then like catapult to like instant success and working nonstop. And then you see people build careers over over smaller bits of chunks at a time, you know? And I don't think I don't think it's for anybody to say well, you've, you've missed your mark as an emerging artist or, or you haven't. Um, it's, it's really weird. I'm, I'm contemplating this a lot at the moment. Um, I'm not shy about my age. I'm turning 30 in two weeks. Um, and it's this weird, um, it is this weird in between. Cause I, I have, I, I, I look at the things that I've done in my career and I, I am proud of the things that I have accomplished. And at the same time, I recognize that I've got so much more to do and that there's so much that I haven't done yet. Um, and I don't even know, like, it depends on who you ask, you know, what an emerging artist is. If, if your metric is, did they work at Stratford? Did they work at Marvish? I am barely established. But if your metric is like, you know, X amount of credits or whatever, then like I might stand a chance, but you know, I, I regardless, I think like, I think if we can, perhaps it's not about the term, but if we can acknowledge that people cook on their own times and that, you know, just because you didn't book Stratford at 21 doesn't mean that you're going to be an established artist at 31. I, I think we would keep our artistic community open to so many more people than I think we are. I, 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 I think we sometimes write people off a little too much. We sometimes keep our doors a little too closed. 
Um, and I'd, I'd love to see more stories of like, Hey, you know what? They decided to start when they were 35 and like, you know, crushed it, you know, or like there is no timeline, you know, like, like Andre de Shields won his first Tony award in his seventies. Like if that's, if, if slowly is the quickest way to where you're going, then I've got a whole lifetime. Anybody has a whole lifetime, you know, like, I think we can do away with the notion that if you haven't made it at 25, you're done. Well, that's for sure. That's absolutely the case. I mean, I think we all, we all move at our different at, 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 like you said, we bake it different at different, different speeds. And, um, I think it, it does a disservice. Um, I think, cause I think a lot of people feel like they're still emerging. Right. Yeah. I think there's very few people who actually feel like they have their they have their established artists because yeah. in this country we work as you know as much as you can, but there's not as much work as in some other places. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I feel I feel that way too. I feel like I'm constantly trying to trying to build, you know. And and people say, oh well, Joseph, you've done X Y Z, and I'll be like, yeah, but I'm still building. Like you know, like I'm still. I, I still have my dry spells. I still have my moments of not working. And, and on the inside, it feels a lot different than it looks on the outside. Oh, of course it does. Because people only see the part that's the public part. They see the part on stage. They don't They don't know about everything else that goes on uh, uh, behind all of that. They don't know how long the rehearsals are. They don't know what it took to get to that point. Um, and so it's... It, 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 it sometimes it, it it looks like oh that person they're absolutely established meanwhile you know anyway there's so many conversations that, that can spiral out of that yeah. and and we unfortunately don't have time but i want to thank you joseph for for speaking with me today um uh, i've really enjoyed our conversation and uh, it was great getting to know you oh my goodness thank you thank you for having me it was such an honor to speak with you and get to know you in this platform This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me... You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.